glad to be with you this morning here at Genesis Community Church. My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors. We are about halfway through a series called One Another, God's Heart for All of Us, as we go through specific commands in the New Testament about how we are to operate together. And you'll find, hopefully as you stick it out week after week, is that these really do weave together in unique ways for us, is that they work together in church life in certain ways, and they become a very strong braided cord, assuming that we are able, by God's Spirit, in humility, submission to His Word, to live them out. And so that's what we are longing for for our church. That's what we are praying for. That's what our community groups are discussing and working through. How do we live more faithfully for the Lord together? And I bet we've all been there in some capacity. If you have been in church life for any amount of time or you've been in a small group setting of any kind or a Sunday school setting of any kind where maybe you're meeting with somebody in your church family and they're struggling. Struggling is always the word. Struggle kind of is what we use when we say when we mean sin. It means when we're having a difficult time, we just use the word struggling as a way to say it. Well, I'm struggling right now. But maybe their, maybe their issue is their, their diet and their discipline. Well, That was the one I picked for this. And they feel like they're in this kind of monotonous cycle of wanting to pursue discipline, falling off, getting on, falling off. And you might know the story. You might be in it right now. I don't know what part of the cycle you're in. And so they keep trying, and they come to you, and they go, I just can't seem to, I can't seem to address the discipline in my life, or I can't, I can't rein in how I eat. I can't, I can't seem to pursue this well. I don't know what's going on. And you're, you, on the other side of the table, are trying to understand this person more, and you just start offering you know, platitudes because you're grasping for some kind of way to help out. So you might say something like, hey, thanks for sharing with me, which is a kind thing to say. Uh, we all struggle with this. I struggle with this. You struggle with this. And so you try to break, make some kind of common bond. I've been there for sure might be a word you use. And then you go, hey, just so you know, I'll be praying for you. And you leave the meeting having actually not shared anything meaningful, having not actually prayed for them but given a commitment to pray for them rather than pray for them even there in the moment. And then as you're processing it, many of you are processors, and so you're going through your day, and you're trying to comprehend, how, what could I have done better, Lord? How could I better serve that person or that family? And, and you find yourself remembering, oh, gosh, you know what? You know, Paul does say to Timothy that you know, bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of a value in every way as it holds promise in this present life and in the life to come. And so being sure that their pursuit of physical discipline is rightly ordered Right? That might be a good conversation to have. Are you disciplining yourself toward godliness or do you just want to discipline yourself toward a marathon? Which one, which one is, is the superseding value? Man, that might have been a great thing to share. I forgot about it. You think um, as you go longer, maybe you're in the reading plan, you get to something like 1 Corinthians. Whatever you drink or eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So you can have a conversation about heart condition and how are you and what are you trying to pursue and what's your goal. But you think back on the conversation and you go, man, just saying I've been there before, I totally get it, I'll, I'll, I'll commit to pray for you. When you kind of process that, you might go, gosh, I could have I helped more. I could have pointed them back to the Lord. I could have been more of an encouragement. I, I didn't realize that I was just kind of offering advice, not on purpose, but something anybody could say. You could go to an unbeliever, and an unbeliever could go, yeah, I've been there before. I've struggled with my discipline. That's been very hard. So, so what is the unique contribution that as a brother or sister you can add? And you I don't have to feel super bad about it. We've all done it. But you realize at times we have all thought about the ways we've shared the ways we've encouraged, the ways we want to help people grow up in the faith and then go, you know what, I didn't, I didn't offer what I could have. I didn't share what I could have. Maybe you even at times feel inferior. Maybe you feel like, I just can't, I don't know, I've, I don't have that issue. And so I can't really help somebody with that issue. I don't have a discipline issue. I don't have this issue. And so you don't feel like you can offer something. Um, or on the other side, you feel like you're too far into it in yourself to actually be able to offer anything that's helpful because you feel like a hypocrite. 
I think there are many times where you or I convince ourselves that we don't have something meaningful to offer to brothers and sisters because we don't feel worthy. And so what we do is we kind of just refer up. Hey, you should talk to an elder, or you should talk to another person, or you should talk to a counselor here, or you should go to that, because we don't feel like we can offer anything. And we don't realize that what we've actually done is taken away from that brother or sister something that God has given to them, and that is us. You've removed yourself out of the equation of how God has put maybe that person in your life at that time and in that way. And it can sound, it can sound harsh coming from me, if you were to go, hey, Hans, I have this person in my life and I'd really like you to talk to them, for me to go, I would really like for you to talk to them because you have, God put that person in your life, not in my life. He put that person in your life. And so I would love for you to learn. I would love to help you talk to that person. I would love to help you encourage that person versus going, yeah, I'll take it on for you. Thank you very much. Pat you on the head. Thanks for doing your job. You got him to church. Let me take it from here. That is sometimes how we're trained, though, in evangelism, is like get them to church, let the pastor take it from there. Let another leader take it from there. Let somebody else better take it from there. And that's just not, that's not how the New Testament expects the church family to operate together. We've kind of tapped out of meaningful interactions that we can have with people because we always feel inferior. I tell you, I have a lot of schooling under my belt. I have a lot of ministry experience under my belt, and I still... Always. I was sitting with one, two, th- three pastors, and another guy was there half the time. On, on Thursday, we get together and we review sermons of one another about every quarter. We just talk, we go through it. And I was on the hot seat this week. It was my pre-scheduled hot seat week. And so I won't get another one for a year, praise the Lord. And, and I said, I just need you guys to know, I, I come in here assuming all of you are better preachers than I am. Every single one. And I've preached longer than all of them. I'm like, you guys are just all better. All of you are better. You're all, like, we, anywhere we go, and they all roll their eyes and scoff. And, oh, shut up, Hans. You, know, you don't need to do that. You don't need to talk like that. And, but we always kind of come into relationships often inferior. I don't have a thing. I, don't, I can't bring that. I don't have that knowledge. I don't have that expertise. I don't have that history. I, don't have all the, I haven't preached that many times. I haven't taught that many times. Uh, what, what if I give a verse, and the verse is actually out of context? You know, God's going to correct that, too. And so I think about that and how it grieves me. I do the same thing, right? Like I, I, I'm that kind of person. You can be that kind of person. Where you just go, I just don't know what to share. I don't know how to share it. I'm not good enough, smart enough, engaged enough, aware enough of what's in the Bible. I don't know anybody who feels like they're competent in the Scriptures in the sense of, like, I have learned everything I need to learn. I have comprehended everything that I need to comprehend. I've never met that person. I've met people who do have a confidence about the scriptures, confidence in the scriptures, but never somebody who goes, licked it, got it, moving on, because there's no moving on. It's the character and nature of God. And so it, it, it pushes us toward humility. So what I want to do today is just look at Romans 15, where we are 14, 15, and 16, and just go, what is God's expectation for how we interact with each other? based on how Paul talks to the Romans. So I'm going to talk about multiple verses, but we're going to use 14, 15, and 16 of Romans 15 to help us because, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Romans 15 about the welcoming one another and weaker and stronger brothers and how that is supposed to look. And, and so we're actually going to, I'm going to take it in reverse order. I'm going to look at 15 and 16 and then verse 14 because 15 and 16 kind of sets up who Paul is for the Roman church and also who Paul is often for the New Testament era churches, and then verse 14 reminds them of what he wants them to be able to do. And so we're going to actually talk, start with the talk about church authority, church leadership, and then we're going to move to church life, and I'm going to give us all a challenge. And the first point about church authority is this, is that God has designed authority to help the church. That's actually a part of church life is leadership. It's a part of what you see throughout New Testament language. The Apostle Paul got to sit in this place of um, apostolic authority. That was a role that he was able to have in the churches that he was a part of. That's why he was able to write to them and correct them and challenge them and instruct them. We recognize that there were men God used in unique ways to establish what we see. and We read these men differently than you might read a letter I write you. Because we know that God was doing something in these moments that was unique, and we want to keep going back to them. And so Paul had this way of of commanding but backing off, 
And he actually had a reputation of being bolder in his writing than he was in his personal presence. And, they all, and some churches even had a hard time recognizing that because he would come across very strong in his writing and then when he was with people, he would come across as very quiet perhaps or timid or, or more gentle-spirited. And they would see this contrast between the Paul of the letter and the Paul of the guy in the room. So you look at him... And we'll get to the but in a second, which is contrasting verse 14. But he says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. And he moves to his ministry to the Gentiles. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about his tone toward the church and he's saying, in some things I have written to you boldly by way of reminder, reminding them of who they are, what God has done for them, what God would expect for them. And the reason he has that kind of authority is because it came from God, by God, to be able to be a minister on behalf of God to the Gentiles. That was where the bulk of Paul's ministry was. So Peter was kind of the apostle to the Jews, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul had a highly engaged ministry to Jews as well. It just found that much of his ministry was geared towards those with a Greek background more than it was geared towards those with a Jewish background. And so he's speaking about his authority there to speak to matters in church life to them. The Corinthians had a hard time with Paul's authority. They actually would challenge it. They, they, they got a little tired of Paul and would push back on, well, how, how much authority does this guy actually have? Which always happens. The Galatian church had that same issue. The Galatians was likely Paul's first letter, and it didn't take long for people to come in after Paul and share, well, Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. He doesn't understand how we're saved, and so let me come in and correct Paul's theology for you. I mean, what a guy. Paul got to the end of his life, and I'm not even sure how many buddies he had left. Because they, they would leave him. They would reject him. They would abandon him. He had Timothy. He had Mark. Luke was with him. But he didn't have this just army of people. Because as you march through in gospel faithfulness, you do find that some people just kind of peel off. And others join on for a season and leave. And so he didn't have much, but he had authority given by God. This is actually what he said. Uh, God said to Ananias, in his conversion in Acts chapter 9, he goes, I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. That was, the, that was what Paul was to do, suffer for the name of Jesus on behalf of the gospel, mainly toward the Gentiles. So we have this idea that God uses authority, and, and what Paul's trying to do is, is in this buffer, his authority, I'm going to give you a few examples in a moment where he's just not trying to come in and go, I can tell you this because I'm an apostle. That's actually often what he's trying not to do. He's trying not to crack a whip. He's just trying to recognize, I do have a role for you. So first, we're going to go to Hebrews. This is just two verses in Hebrews 13, which we've recently read in our reading plan. Hebrews 13, 7 and Hebrews 13, 17. The author of the Hebrews says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so we see even in that, that the leaders of the church were there to be teachers and be an example and that you are to consider their way of life, consider how they were to operate. That's one way God has given leadership to the church as exemplary people to help lead you more in Christ-likeness. So Hebrews 13, 7, remember them and consider them. There might even be this thought because the church that was suffering at this time was considering leaving the faith. They were considering abandoning their Christian faith to go back into Judaism because it was safe and it wasn't going to be hostile and they weren't going to die. And so it's almost like you can hear the author going, remember those people who died for their faith? Remember those leaders who followed Jesus faithfully? Remember them and imitate their faith. Then he moves it in verse 17 where he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We use this verse in our member class, not to control, uh, which it can sound like. Uh, but like I, I use this when we talk about joining the church is because, uh, like, if I could put it this way, like, you want, you want your leaders to enjoy caring, right? Like, like, it, it, like, like it is. Cynthia's smiling. You get it. You've been in church for a while. 
Like, like honor your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watchers. So let, let, them, let them labor amongst you well. Let them labor amongst you joyfully, because they have a heavy task. So we see in 13.7 that there's a, they're, they're to be exemplary in their behavior and in their conduct. We hear in 13.17 that there's this, this command to obey. They keep account, so let them serve joyfully in that. And so <clears throat> in all of those things, we recognize there's this, there is this aspect where God has given leadership. It can be, in the sense, in the New Testament era of apostolic leadership in Paul or the pastoral leadership that you see in Acts chapter 20 or Acts chapter 14 or what Peter discusses in 1 Peter chapter 5. But there are people gifted to serve and to lead in the church. But the leadership role is not whip-cracking which is sometimes might maybe how it can be felt. Anytime we use the word submit, be it in church life or in marriage, people are like, <gasps> like it's a Bible word, it's okay, it's not going to hurt us, because rightly understood, it is not something that we should run from. It is something God has given us to help create harmonious relationships of submission and honor and care. In, ordered in the right way, they are our good. They're not our harm. And yet because we as Americans often struggle with the idea of anybody being an authority over us, I mean, that was kind of how our country was even started, right? We're in charge. That gets sometimes baked into church life, which actually has order, and the home life actually has order. And so the order itself is something that we want to honor. But it is not... Uh, a call to the carpet kind of order. Paul is trying to address that. I'm going to give you a couple of examples in Paul's ministry where even though he could exact something because of his role in the church, he actually chooses not to. One of them is in a postcard. The postcard is the letter to Philemon. If I say Philemon 8, you're going to look for, to chapter 8. So there's only one chapter in Philemon. So Philemon 8 means just the eighth verse of Philemon. Uh, so Philemon 1.8, if that makes you feel better, but like that's why I say Philemon 8. Don't look for chapter 8. It's a postcard. Second uh, John, 3 John, Philemon, we have a Jude, we have a couple of postcards that were written there, tucked away in the back of your Bible. And Philemon was written, Paul was writing to a, a brother and a, a church, uh, house church host, at least, and one of the uh, Philemon's household slaves ran away and Paul found him and he was converted there in Rome. And Paul sent him back. It's a little spooky, isn't it? He sent him back to Philemon. The slave's name was Onesimus. Sent him back to Philemon in order to do the right thing. He wanted Philemon to do the right thing. Now, this is what you see in Philemon 8. Accordingly, listen to his language, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. So do you hear the way Paul is, is walking a tightrope of, I could tell you what to do here, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to trust that you'll do the right thing. I could keep Onesimus with me and say, deal with it, because he's helping me in gospel ministry. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm to send this runaway man back to you because I want you to receive him as a brother. And he even adds later, please know that if he owes you anything, meaning if he stole anything from you when he left, I'll pay it back. I will make the restitution to you. So you receive him back gladly, and you receive him back as a brother. Now, that takes a whole lot of trust in what God is doing in relationships to say, I'm sending him from Rome back to you, and I'm going to trust you do the right thing. 
more than likely, right, if you read this, Onesimus was the letter carrier, right? Like, here you go, this is from Paul, right? You know, like, like there, there is this idea. But, like, he's going to see, read this letter, Onesimus is going to be in his presence, and there's an expectation that Philemon does the right thing. He doesn't crack the whip there, does he? He doesn't say, he's with me, he's staying with me, deal with it. He goes, though I am bold enough, and I could to tell you how this is going to go, I want you to do the right thing. I'm even going to trust that you do the right thing. And so Paul has not necessarily just confidence in Philemon, he has confidence in God, that even with his authority, he's not going to flex unnecessarily in this situation. As elders of a church, the last thing I want to do, like the last line of defense is, last line is, you do this because we said do it. Like that's not the first thing you say, it's not the second, third, fourth, fifth, it's the last thing. Right after every other appeal is lost, you go, well, it's because this is what we've decided. And very often, by God's grace, you never get to that. You never, you never play the authority card because of all of the ways the Spirit works up to, through, and in that. You never have to play that card. And Paul rarely plays it unless the issue is about the gospel itself. This is about the relationships that brothers are supposed to have and the way that people are supposed to operate. So we see that. But there's another example. We've actually read this before. We're talking about generosity in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's raising money for the Jerusalem church. Paul was an excellent fundraiser. All the fundraising ministries that you've ever been a part of, he, he, like, he is the example. You go to how he did it because he had a great way of talking about what the need was and having confidence in God that it was going to be taken care of. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. This is actually in 8.8. I say this not as a command. Similar language, isn't it? Not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that through his, by his poverty you might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. So now finish doing it. The work is giving. Now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And so he's actually fundraising and going, I could command this, but I'm not, because I saw your hearts a year ago, and you were going to do it, and so now I'm just going to remind you to finish the thing you said you were going to do. So again, you see how he actually trusts the work of God, communicates his heart as an apostle for the church, but does not exact a specific kind of response from the Corinthian church. He does this both in the interpersonal between himself and Philemon and Onesimus, and he does this in his relationship with the Corinthian church at large to not force them or exact a certain kind of thing. And anybody in the room knows, right? You guys all know that if you are required to do something because somebody told you to, it is far less enjoyable than if you recognize that it's good to do. So what is the leader's role? In, we'll use Paul's example. What's the Paul's apostolic role here? He is pointing them to what is good to do. And he's reminding them of the work of God in their own hearts. And he's trusting that God is going to use that work and his spirit in order to accomplish the better outcome. Which is why Paul's letters are, they do have significant instruction and command in them, but they only come on the tail end of explaining all the ways God has changed our hearts. So it's God's changed you, God's changed you, God's changed you. And so this is how it should look. While not apostolic in the same sense, pastoral authority does have a place. It has it in our gatherings. It has it in our instruction. It has it in our execution of discipline. But it has, uh, it has I'll say, I have wrote it has its limitations. And what, by that I mean, it requires spirit humility in part of everybody. So that you aren't always just trying to exact something. And you see that example throughout Paul. 
Now, the reason we go through all of this, why are we talking about Hebrews, and why are we talking about Philemon, and why are we talking about 2 Corinthians when we're in Romans, Hans? It's because you go back to Romans 15, 14, and you begin to see the same kind of desire that he has for the Roman church to be able to do for one another what he's already asked. So what we see is, yes, there are leaders, but God's people are all able to do the work of instruction or admonition. Admonishment is not usually the word that we use. Like, we're like, hey, brother, just let me admonish you. So I don't use that word as often. Here it's called instruction in the ESV, but you'll find that it's also used as um, warning or teaching or admonishing in different contexts. So God's people, there are leaders, but God's people, I'll use this phrase, have what it takes to do the work of building one another up in Christ-likeness. So what do we read in verse 14? This comes on the heel of Paul's apostolic ministry, his ministry to the Gentiles, but in verse 14 we see this. I myself am satisfied about you. He's just commanded them about weaker and stronger brothers, weaker in faith and stronger in faith. I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves, and he appeals to the heart, and he appeals to the character, you're full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So here he is writing an entire letter where he is offering both theology, truth, and instruction on how they are to operate, 12, 13, 14, 15. He's offering what he would like to see them to do. But yet right there in verse 14, he says, I'm satisfied about you. You have everything that you need to provide the kind of instruction that you need. Now, why would he be satisfied? Let's think about this for a second. Did the Roman church even have the full canon of Scripture? Answer, no. They didn't have everything. They didn't have every letter. They didn't have every instruction. They didn't have this recognized body of authority in order to engage with. They didn't have that. They had the letter to the Romans. So, Genesis here in spring, you actually have more of what God has revealed for the church than even the Romans had when they received this letter. You have more at your disposal to know and to realize and to worship God for and to abide by. And yet he's already saying, I'm satisfied about you. And you have everything that you need in order to instruct one another. Why is that? Well, because they have God's Spirit. They have God's Spirit. And God doesn't dole out His Spirit in percentages. So Paul gets 95% of all that he wanted to exhibit through Paul. And the Roman church, if you found the mean, had about 63%. And so Paul's instruction was filling in the gap between 63 and 95 He pours his spirit on all who have believed. His word is given to all who have believed. And thus, you have what it takes. You don't have what it takes based on just your mind, your thoughts, your habits, or anything else. But because of the divine provisions that exist for you from God to be able to build people up in the way that they need to be built up. God's spirit. God's message, God's word. That is what we have. Now, this idea of instruct, that's weird because it's like, um, you know, when Professor Bart was up here the other day, and it was great, Bart. Thank you for preaching here. Um, Bart teaches all the time, all the time. Hours and hours of a week go to instructing what will all be our kids or your kids or whatever else uh, and doing just that. And so when we talk about instruct, we might think of like the professor in the classroom that's like, and here, and if you look at this, and if you look at this, and if you look at this, here it is. Like all we want to do is just fill your notebooks with more data so that you can know certain dates and places and times and verses and things. But that is not our heart. That's not Bart's heart. That's not anybody's heart at this church is that we could just 
just cram more information into your mind and that that's going to give you what it needs. In fact, this idea behind instruct isn't just PowerPoint presentations and verse resuscitation, but it is the ability to admonish or to properly align your life with what God would have. Okay? Here are a couple of places that that word shows up. I had a long list. I just I, I reduced it to three. Acts chapter 20. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. He says, therefore be alert. Verse 31. Remembering that for three years I did not see Snyder Day to, there's the word, same word, admonish everyone with tears. Instruct, teach, correct, right? Align, help you see what was needed. Verse 16 of Colossians chapter 3 reads like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just in the leaders. Not just in the small group leaders. Not just in the Sunday school teachers. Not just in the kids classroom. Let you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You ever think that even when we gather in worship, we are rightly aligning our hearts with truths about God? We're singing these things so that they can embed themselves in us more and, and we can use them and sing them and discuss them in ways that can root themselves into who we are. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage, last week was that, the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. When you go back to verse 14 of Romans chapter 15, and he says, instruct one another. That's the idea that he has. It's not lectures and lessons. It's instruction to the heart perhaps even counsel. Some would use that word. Your, your books would use that word if you're going through the study together. Counsel, disciple, train up. When Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded, there's an aspect of it. admonishment in that. Maybe we need to redeem the word. I get tattooed on my arm here. Now why? When we see the word, and actually we, we even see Paul saying, admonish each other, instruct each other. You can do it. Why does this become so hard for us, for you and for me? Why does this become so hard? Well, there is the part where we just feel like we've, we've doled out the admonishers exist over here and the just listeners exist over here. We've kind of, we subdivide ourselves into groups of Christians where some can do some things and others can't do another. And Paul doesn't seem to say in Romans 15 or in Colossians 3 or in 1 Thessalonians 5, only this kind of person does this kind of work. But that we are to do this kind of work. Now, if you talk about in the instruction of sin, I think what Bart preached a couple of weeks ago really helps us is that if you're walking by the Spirit, the work becomes much easier to help correct because you're not ensnared in your own sin. But just in regard to correction and sharing and strengthening and encouraging, all the words that we have been using thus far in this series, we often feel ill-equipped unprepared, underprepared, don't know enough, don't have enough. Well, if I had only gone through this training or if I had only done this, then I would be more prepared to do this. And in fact, that's not the case. You today may not even feel like a leader or a pastor. You might not feel like you'll ever ascend to that type of role in church life. But ascending to that role or not actually has no bearing on your ability to live out this verse, because it's not only for a subset of the Roman church. It is for the Roman church. And so it's not about, well, let other people do that and not other people. Another part of it is because we don't actually live in community well sometimes, we don't, we're not around each other enough, we don't know how to encourage people in the word or in truth to help align their hearts to the Lord. It becomes hard for us because we, just, we are just distant. And then there's another, and this one is hard, but some of us choose immaturity. We choose immaturity in the sense that we just don't put a lot of effort into understanding our God better. And so we make ourselves ineffective and ill-equipped 
because, like I said, for the Roman church, they had the letter to the Romans. We have the full counsel. And yet, very often, we don't discipline ourselves to read it, to know it, to discuss it, to pray it, to learn it. And so, the meaningful ways that we can engage, we've opted ourselves out of. God has given us his spirit. It's not going anywhere, and it's not just a small portion of it. It's the whole spirit. God has given us one another. God has given us his word, but sometimes we just don't feel like we want to engage it. And so we have chosen immaturity rather than to step up and into the things God has given to us. We just keep it at bay. That's not everybody, but it's common in any church. In fact, if you read the letter to the Hebrews, doesn't the author of the Hebrews say this very same thing? I wish we wouldn't have to be talking about these items right now, but we do. So rather than be able to move from them, we kind of got to go back to some basic things because of where you are. And that's not something to just live in. You go, you're right. I've never met a Christian, I've shared this before, I've never met a Christian who, is, who feels mature enough who feels confident enough, who feels competent enough in, in his or herself. Never met that person. And if I have, I usually don't want to be around them because it's just arrogance that comes out of that, right? Like it's, it's, just, it's just, well, I know, I have it, I know the answer, I know this, I know that. And very often discerning what's going on in somebody's heart is a difficult task. Hearing what's going on and knowing and praying over it and, labor and knowing how to encourage, how to admonish, how to instruct, that's a very hard thing. And so we decide not to. So what do we do with this? I mean, it really is. I, I found myself in this going, yes, God has given the church leaders, but Paul, even in Romans 15, is saying, but you guys should be able to do this. In fact, he's leaving them this letter, sending this letter on to them, and expects them to be able to start doing the things that are in it. He's convinced about them. Well, Genesis, here in Spring, Texas, and whatever day it is, the 15th of October, 2023, it's true for us too. I, we, us, whatever way you want to say that, convinced. The Lord is convinced about us that we have what it takes to build one another up, to instruct one another, to admonish one another. And so I'll say this. I'm using it as a be ready because I think sometimes we don't feel ready. I'm going to give a couple of <clears throat> some pointers for it. But be ready to instruct the brothers and sisters in your life. Now, I've already mentioned weeks past that some of us feel like we have the spiritual gift of correction. So we're, not, we're, we're leaving that one because that's not actually the spiritual gift that we're looking for. We, we do need people who can help us, and we do need to be able to be corrected. But if you're hearing this going, all right, I cannot wait to have this conversation with this sister. Like, it, I have been waiting, and now Hans has given me the green light. Nope, you don't have the green light. You don't have the green light. When I say be ready to instruct, I'm going to talk about it in two ways. Because it's not everyone and it's not always. Where you just kind of go, okay, well what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the member list, I'm going to go to each member and I'm going to find a way to admonish them. Not what we're going for. Because you're already probably pocketed out in some relationships. You might be in a small group or a discipleship group. You might have people that you engage with in a counseling setting. Or you might have people that you talk with. You might have some relationships that already exist that perhaps God has put before you so that you can begin doing this work amongst them. Versus just going, give me the, give me the member list, I'm ready to go. So not everyone, not always. Why I say be ready, I first want to prove the effectiveness to you. And by that, I mean, I want you to go to the Word and watch what it does to your heart if you go before it and say, Lord, what do you want me to learn here? Our groups are doing this entire initiative of better care for each other. And part of the way that they were trained, and we haven't escalated to these yet, but one thing that they've all done together, all our group leaders um, I think, or almost all of them, anyone who's at our training in July, we're, we're given some resources. And the resources are called heart-targeting homework, where you take one of four issues, anger, despair, fear, or foolishness, four kind of postures that might exist in your heart. And there's this sheet of verses and questions and reflections and things to pray over where you just allow the word 
to start to impact your heart. And some of you already know, I've handed this stuff to you. I'm like, hey, I want you to do this assignment. I want you to do this thing. I want you to do that thing. Because when I say prove to yourself that it works is you have to really just go before the Lord with his word and realize that if you just stay there, it says fairly significant things about the condition of our heart. And so I have those four homework assignments, anger, despair, fear, and foolishness on the community group table on the way out. There's just 10 copies of each one. But here's my first encouragement to you. If you've never actually done this in any kind of way that you just go, Lord, let's see what happens if I bring my heart before you and let's just see what goes on there, is take, take the one where you go, I want to do this one. Anger is controlling, manipulative. Like, you know, I, I have a list of anger people I pray for and I'm on it. It's not just like, yeah, I'm, I'm on that list. Um, and so I have that list because that's something that I, I can recognize in my own heart. So I've done that assignment. I've handed it out. Uh, fear, where you're just fearful about how life's going to go, your own decisions and those kinds of things. Often when you walk by sight, you live in fear because it makes it very hard for you to trust in God. And so fear is one. Fear of circumstances, fear of situations. That's one of the homeworks. Foolishness is you're just making, you're just making goofy decisions. You've made them in your own heart. You've given over yourself to just foolish patterns. That might even be the diet and exercise where you just overeat because you don't care. Like you're, just, you're living in a way as if, as if God's ways don't matter. And so you may not want to call yourself foolish, so put another word on it if you need to. Destructive, harmful, but foolishness is one. And then um, despair are for those who just don't see a way out. And so we have 10 assignments or 10 pronouns of each one of those, I would encourage you, no one's judging you by which one you take. Um, you know, but take one and go, all right, and there's a list of verses, things to consider, heart idle positions. That's, just, that's what there is. And all it's trying to do is, for this is to show you that when you go to the Word and go, God, could you help me understand more about myself in it? Every time you do that, humbly, the Lord responds. And you'll learn something. It may not even be the thing you thought you were going to learn. But anytime I've handed that one of those assignments out to somebody and we've debriefed it, it does result in somebody going, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't considered that. I did see this in me. And so you'll be shocked to realize how potent God's word is and God's spirit is to help you walk with him. And so that's my first challenge. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do it. And just take one and go. Work through it this week. If you're in a small group, discuss it with your community group leader. I say community group, small group. It, it's it, years of ministry and language. It just all gets, it all gets blurred up in there. If you're in some kind of group where you talk about the Bible with others, talk about it there. And say, yeah, I did the anger homework, and here's what I learned about myself. Here's what I saw in myself. Or here's what it taught me that I've been holding on to or clinging to. And so do that. Secondly, that's for you to try out. For others, your relationship toward others, here's the thing, because you have to start with yourself, right? You have to go to your heart first and not be ready to run towards other people's hearts and tell them what they need. So run to your heart first and go, Lord, deal with me here. Secondly, I would encourage you this week, and this is, why we, this is one of the reasons we do a reading plan, is so that there's just this steady drip of God's word into our lives that we can discuss and we can talk about in our discipleship groups or we can ch- challenge with one another. It just allows for us to share and did you know that when you're sharing God's word with people, you're kind of doing this work? Like, it's like secret, but like you actually are doing it. You don't, you know, you don't have to go, let, brother, let me admonish you for a moment. You just share the truth and let the Lord do what the Lord's going to do in those moments. So here's what I would, I would encourage you to do for others. Find a way this week to specifically remind someone of something that God's word says. Just, just anchor them in some aspect of truth. If you're in your uh, community group, then just take a moment and share with your group. I read this this week and it really helped me. I I learned this about us or about me. Maybe you have a relationship of somebody who's suffering or struggling or hurting and you read something in the reading plan and it reminds you to go to them. And so you text it or email it or maybe even write a note, handwritten note. My handwriting is very bad. Anytime I send a note to somebody, they say, I think I know what it said. Thank you. I'm like, I know. I even slow myself down and it still looks terrible. I'm sorry. But find the way to bring that encouragement. I'll give you an example in my own life that um, I'm really grateful to the Lord that it, it was able to happen. Um, 
A few weeks ago, I was wondering what to share with a friend who was suffering from pancreatic cancer, and he had just hit the one-year mark, which is a pretty big milestone. One year from your diagnosis of pancreatic cancer is a pretty big milestone. Now, on Wednesday, I buried him, so he didn't make it much past a year. But he had just made it to a year, and it was in September, and I was, I, I'm a joker, and so I said to Steve, I said, Steve, you know, earlier in August, I said, thank you so much for falling and hurting your hip so that you were in Dallas and not in Denton so that I didn't have to drive as far to go see you. I really appreciate that. Uh, and he and his wife, they laughed because they get it. But I got to sit at the hospital, at his hospital bed and hear him talk about God's goodness forever. And what do you tell a man who knows he's going to die? Like, we all know it, but he knows it. And... So what do you tell a man that? So, so August, we're joking. I get to see him. He talks about his funeral, what he'd like to see, what he'd not like to see. He's a very organized man. And so you know, I have the picture. I cherish that picture of me and him and his wife just at his bedside because a week or about, about six weeks later, he's not with us. But what do, I, what do I share with that? Well, there's a Saturday. And if you're doing our reading plan in the way that I do it, Saturday is... Saturday's Psalms. It's a way to give you a breather because when you're in Luke and Ezekiel, buckle up. It takes you get like a hundred verses a day, and it's just like that's so much, and I don't know anything about Ezekiel. So Saturdays are kind of a reprieve uh, from what is happening here. I got flaming wheels and all kinds of stuff, and I don't know. But you get to the Psalms and you go, okay, I can read 12 verses today and enjoy it. The reading for that morning was Psalm 125. So I just said, happy year. Uh, here is something that I read this morning that reminded me of you. Psalm 125, verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. The last communication I had with this man before I got to celebrate his life twice this week, because uh, some people are so big they get two funerals. And he got two. The last thing he said back to me in my life, before he died, was great verses. The end. Now, God doesn't give me that relationship with everybody. That was a special thing. I think I have one. But if we purpose in our own lives to go to people with truth, to encourage, to instruct, to remind, even when you don't know what to share, and you go, I was reading this this morning, and I just thought of you. You don't even know. That's a faith move. You don't know what's on the other end of that conversation. You don't know what's on the other end of that person's heart. And so you just step into it and say, here you are. And you leave it alone. You don't need reciprocation. You don't need anything else. You just, just you're, you're, it's like, <laughs> it's really a message in a bottle. You kind of put it out and you go, I hope, I hope this does what I need it to do. Because as we're learning how to share and encourage and instruct, we're going to feel very, uh, very overwhelmed with our own effectiveness. But if you have confidence that God's word doesn't return void in any kind of way and that, that it's always useful to share scripture with people, then it will do something. It will do something. More than the attaboys. Because at that point in time, when you know your time is limited, saying it's all going to be okay doesn't really work, does it? It's all going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. You're going to leave your wife. You're going to leave your four kids. You're going to leave all your grandkids. Everything you thought you were going to do. That's, okay is the wrong word for that. God surrounds you. God surrounds you. That lifts people toward him. Doesn't give them a platitude. So for you, I'd say, try the homework. For others, this week, find a way to do something toward them. Encourage somebody in your group, in your life, in some way. And I would also encourage you this month to commit to investigate some aspect of the Christian life that you just want to learn more about. It can be an emotion, it can be a habit, it can be a discipline, it can be a topic, a prayer. But commit to learn more about what God's word says about it so that when you instruct, and that doesn't mean lecture, it means talk to your brother or sister in a way that roots them and reminds them in truth. When you instruct, you're providing something that gives life. And so just begin to commit to learn something about God's character, God's ways, a habit that we should pursue, a spiritual discipline that might be effective. Just, just commit to study it and learn it. I, know, I do it the same way you guys do. I trust you. You just Google verses on XYZ. 
That is how I still get started. Or verses that I know I should know that I don't. I still just go, what, what is the verse that says? I mean, John 3.16, if it weren't for 40 years of it, I'd probably still have to Google it. Where is the verse that says, for God so loved the world? And my mind just, bloop, it just leaves. So find a way to begin engaging God's word in a way that you might, that might be beneficial. Because when we read about instruct one another, the thing that it requires is all of us to be able to step in. And the thing that we need is God's truth for all of us. I don't just need your ideas. God's truth for all of us. He brings that. He encourages that. He strengthens that. And we leave it to him, and we trust, right, by faith, that God's going to do more with it than we could think. Where we just go, here it is. Here's what I see. Here's what God encouraged me with. I hope it encourages you. Here's what I'm learning. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what we discussed. I remember when you shared that, this thought came to mind. This is what I saw. This is what I heard. In humility, not for some kind of reciprocal. Now, what do you want to tell me? Like, like none of that. But because it benefits our brothers and sisters when we give them what matters. It helps them. It serves them. It loves them. It encourages them. And God uses it beyond what we would think. I would love it if Genesis became a church where... I could just say to anybody, oh yeah, just talk to them. Talk to Cynthia, you'll be fine. Talk to Bart, you'll be fine. Talk to Mike, talk to Angela, talk. talk. Because what you're going to get from them is the same thing you'd get from me. The encouragement you're going to get from them, the perspective you're going to get from them is the same thing you're going to get from me. It might even be better. Where we can just be that and know that and expect that. And I would encourage it, I would love it, it doesn't happen a ton either, but like fewer and fewer referrals up. Because we realize, no, God's given me, you, and you, me. That's the relationship. And so we're going to trust in his sovereignty that I'm before you for a reason and you're before me for a reason. I'm going to trust that he's going to use this for his purposes. And not go, you know what, we've got to get, there are times when you have to get somebody else in the room. But I'm going to trust that God has me before you right now and that that's what he has for you. And not go, I don't know what to share, I don't know what to say. Nope. I mean this in every spiritual way possible. Because of Jesus, you have what it takes. You have his word, you have his spirit, and you have a brother or sister who's going to need something. You have what it takes. And if you feel lost, you can ask me, and I'm going to try to help push you back to ways to encourage them versus going, hey, let me take it from here. No, you take it from there, and I'll help you. And at times you'll help me because we need that for each other.